This is an ABC podcast. My partner and I came from a generation where our parents didn't speak at all about puberty and sex to us. So we were pretty much out there discovering it on our own with all our own insecurities and curiosities. And we had lots of conversations when we were having children about how we would handle that differently. So we were very clear about being really honest with them about it and very matter of fact. My son was 14 when we started to have conversations about sex. They didn't ask any questions. It was me who provoked the (laughs) the conversations. I think that it's really difficult for kids to come to their parents and ask about sex at that particular age, at puberty. With my son, about 12 or 13, I think he'd had some sex ed classes at school. He mentioned that or something like that. And so I do remember making some ham-fisted effort along the lines, oh, well, so um, I didn't get very far. And he turned around and said, you're not going to try and have the birds and bees conversation with me, are you, Dad? And I said, oh, no, yeah, no, of course not. And that was it, (laughs) to be honest. How do you feel about talking to your kids about sex? Are you open to everything? Do you avoid the topic at all costs? Or are you somewhere in between, open to the discussion but totally squirmy and awkward about it? Hello, I'm Maggie Dent, and in this Parental as Anything, we're going to have the talk. And in case you didn't realise, the talk has changed a lot since the internet came along. And when do we talk to our kids about their private parts and how babies are made? What do we say to them about safe sex and consent? And how the heck do we do that in a world where unrealistic hardcore porn is just a swipe away? Soon, I'll talk to Dr Cindy Pan about safe sex and why you should let your teens go to their GP without you. But first... Kath Hackinson is a midwife and a nurse specialising in sexual health and thankfully she is totally comfortable talking about anything to do with sex. So you may want to pop your headphones on for this one. Kath, you're a mum to a 13-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. Can you tell me a bit about when you started introducing concepts of private parts and sex with your own kids? Oh, look, it was probably when I would walk into the lounge room and I'd find my three-year-old daughter giving a vulva a really nice little tickle <laughs> or a rub, or we'd have someone over for dinner and she'd be there at the table with her legs spread, no pants, happily fondling. And then it was like, hang on, I need to do something about this. And it was really interesting because, you know, I was working as a sex therapist at the time and in a clinic, and I was talking to adults about this stuff all the time. And I really struggled with my own daughter. That was when I realised that I needed to sort of work out how to talk to a child in a way that I felt safe and that was also helping her. I often get asked, and I do smile when they ask me this, from parents a lot, now when do I have that conversation about the birds and bees as they approach puberty? It's a bit more complicated than just explaining that. So when do we need to start the conversation and how do they do it? perhaps in different developmental stages. We all think of starting at puberty 
for a couple of reasons. One, if we were lucky or unlucky, that's when our parents might have talked to us. Not very well. Or the book usually. on the bed. Yeah, yeah, the book <laughs> on the end of the bed. Uh, the problem with leaving it until puberty, though, is that you've lost this these five to six years beforehand where they're naturally curious. And you can say absolutely anything to them and they accept it. They don't get grossed <laughs> out by it. And they believe a lot of what you say. You can explain what sex is over five years with many conversations rather than waiting until they're 12 and having to give them quite a detailed conversation. So I also meet many parents who find it extremely difficult to use words like vagina and penis and who think it's much better to call them all sweet little names like Fanny Willie or Dick or something. So Kath, please tell us why it's important for them to know the correct names of their bits. Heaps of different reasons why. One is um, in a court of law, they like children be able to say, he touched my vulva or vagina, not my cupcake because it doesn't stand up. So there's that basic safety stuff. Also, if your child's at school and little Johnny touches their vulva and they go up to the teacher and say, Johnny licked my cupcake at morning tea, well, the teacher's going to ignore that. Exactly. So it's about letting them know that there's proper words. And parents often get paranoid. They go, but yeah, but what if they say vagina at the playground? It's like kids are smart. They know that some people think that they're rude words. So it's also the conversation that goes with it. So with my kids, it's like, well, if you say penis or vulva in the schoolyard being silly, you'll probably get in trouble because some people see it as a rude word and conversations about that stuff as well. Education. Yeah, education. Absolutely. Why... Why are adults so squirmy when it comes to talking about sex? And how can we get them to feel more comfortable and confident? Oh, I still don't think I've worked out the answer to that to, as to why we're still so squirmy. Because I know myself with my kids, we can drive past a brothel and I'm quite happy to talk to my kids about that. But if they ask me, well, when did you and dad last have sex? Or how many times have you had sex? Or do you have oral or anal? I get really uncomfortable and get embarrassed. Part of the shame with it all is Sometimes it can feel personal, but the other thing also is that we're worried about the impact of talking to our kids. So I think that's the biggest thing about why we're uncomfortable because we're using words we're not used to, but we're also worried that by talking to our kids that we're actually giving them permission, but information's not permission. Information is about educating and empowering. So by talking, we're not saying, hey, I've just told you what oral sex is. Why don't you go off and practice at school? We're not doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think there's another other side to it, that, that all of us have had a, an embarrassing or a, a potentially shameful moment when we've, you know, in our own <laughs> possibly adolescent or early adulthood that, yeah, we, we don't want our kids to experience that. So we kind of keep that a secret. But there's also that other side that being really intimate with another person is one of you know, the most amazing things on the planet. So we don't want to get it wrong. And also sex is really complex to explain. Like, I've, you know, I've got a background in sex therapy, number of 40, 50-year-olds who still don't have a grip of their own sexuality. And as a parent, how do we explain something to them that's not just, you know, it's not just a physical act. It's the emotional and the psychological and social and everything that goes with it. It's pretty complex. The tricky thing is kids catch us by surprise with their questions, don't they, Kath? What's an appropriate response to a five-year-old who says, Mummy, what's a head job? Probably like most parents, you 
panic straight away or you go straight into a response. But a great little way to get out of an answer, a question like that, is to say, well, what do you think? Because they might be talking about a hat to go on your head. exactly. So sometimes by talking you can do what I call dig yourself a hole and you can dig yourself into a hole and it ends up being this conversation that's about something that they're not even interested in. So it's about giving it age appropriate. You know, if it is something sexual they're inquiring about, it could be as a matter of explaining a head job to a five-year-old. It's when someone puts their mouth on a penis and we don't do that as kids. That's something for grown-ups. So what if a 12-year-old asks that same question, Kath? Ah, now, 12-year-old is different because they're going through puberty. The brain's starting to change. So at 12, they're starting to think of sex as being something that they might one day have to do or want to do. So at the age of 12, you can give a lot more information. Again, you can say, oh, what do you think a head job is? Or did you hear them talking about that at school? And then you might talk about the fact that it's a small part of sexual behaviour and that there's a lot more to sex than just, you know, penises going into vaginas and have much more of a meaningful conversation conversation. Okay, so thankfully, now there's lots of great picture books and other awesome books that can help our parents because I can still remember the only one, the good old, where did I come from? And there's also a new form of education in a digital format, like many videos that are exploring it. Books, I think, are fantastic. Books take the pressure off us as a parent from having to remember everything, but it also means that kids are going to get age-appropriate and also accurate information, whereas if they go and Google it... Yes, I was going to say, what do they get when they Google? Oh, yeah, the Mm. wrong, highly sexualised info that's not age appropriate. Videos are really good as well because a lot of parents, like I have so many parents who ask me that if I could do an online program that they could sit and watch with their child. But the whole thing is that it's not just about giving our kids information about how to have sex and how to make babies and all that sort of stuff. It's actually about having a conversation with our kids my daughter's now 13 and she's at high school and she comes home with stuff that she sees written on the wall in the bathroom or she hears older kids talking on the bus and it's highly sexualized stuff that they're getting from porn but because we're already talking about stuff she comes home and talks to me because she knows that we can have that conversation and we can keep talking about it but if all I did was just gave her a book or sat there and uncomfortably watched a video with her I don't know whether she'd be coming to me about all this other stuff. So when you're talking books, are we just talking about the instructional books or can erotic fiction be useful? Ooh, I've started some debates on my um, Facebook parent group about this one. Educational books are great, but there's more to sex than just the act and the biological or the nuts and bolts approach. And I think books can be really good as well. And this might be going off on a bit of a tangent, but if online porn had been around when I was a teenager, I would have been watching it, Maggie. I was totally curious about what sex was. Do you remember we had the World Book Encyclopedia and you'd look (laughs) up words like vagina, penis, and maybe the Playboy. So that's what we had. If porn had been around where we could have gone to the computer and Googled it, we would have all been watching it as well because we were curious and we wanted to learn about the mechanics of sex because when you're a teenager, you're not interested in the emotional and love and stuff. You just want to know what goes where in what hole, how it happens, does it hurt, how does it work. So I think 
it's also important to then have those conversations about the emotional stuff, about what love is, relationships, trust, consent. And I think we have to have the big conversation that it's an unrealistic world. How do we have those conversations? Because Dr Christie in our first episode was trying to warn parents that young children can stumble into it now. That loss of innocence is one thing. Could we take that as a, you know, a teachable moment as well? Obviously not sitting watching it with them, but talking to them why pornography is actually not the best way for them to discover how to be sexually intimate as they get older. My son in the morning will watch soccer videos on YouTube and on the ads on the side, yep. I turn that into a teachable moment. And, you know, there's a very good chance that he might then go and click on it out of curiosity. But I'll point it out to him and I'll go, hey, mate, look at that. I said, what do you think would happen if you clicked that? He says, I don't know, should we? And I'll go, well, no. No, you know, that's for grown-ups. And chances are it would take you to a page where it would have pictures of people with no clothes on and they might look like they're hurting each other. And we'll talk about it. And there's no loss of innocence. Loss of innocence usually happens in the schoolyard or on the street when you get exposed to some information that totally shocks you or unprepares you or you get shamed because you don't know what a head job is. That is the stuff that breaks kids' innocence. What ages are we talking about here, Kathy? How does the conversation change between an eight-year-old who's actually accidentally stumbled on it and a 12 year old who has actually gone looking for it and gone looking for it again how do we have that conversation oh and this is where it gets quite contentious as well there's two sides of the pornography debate the anti and then there's the ones that say there's actually a place for it and it is educational so with 12 year olds they're looking for it because they're curious about what porn is so they might have heard someone talking about it and it's uh, also a bit risky remember they're wired oh, for a bit more risk aren't they oh, so yes. it really gives them that big oh, this is you know you know if mum found me I'm in really big trouble but but when can it become problematic? It's problematic when they keep going back to it. I think that if you've got a family and a household where you're already talking about sex stuff, which means that you'll probably also start talking about porn, I actually don't think porn is going to be as big a problem for those kids, just from other parents that I've spoken to, because the kids already know what healthy sexuality is. They're already talking about stuff, and they already know, I guess, that it's not real and that they you may have already had conversations about feminism and violence and stuff. And I think the other thing parents need to know, this, you know, adolescence is the emerging of the sexual being within our kids. So no matter how much you want to keep that shut down. I think that the topic of porn is very topical at the moment because it's so freely available and um, certainly a lot more than what it was when we were teenagers and young. The way I've tended to frame those conversations is more about the, um, it's not reality, um, it's not a loving relationship, it's not real, it's more about educating them. So when they do come across it, they can make an informed decision about whether they want to engage in it. The issues with porn, I guess, are what led me to have the conversation with him in the first place and what will lead me to have the conversation that's around the corner with my 14-year-old daughter. When he turned 14, 15, porn became readily available on the internet and I was well aware of what sort of porn was, you know, one click and what you were seeing. It wasn't, you know, vintage porn. It wasn't natural sex as far as I'm concerned. It was really quite, you know advanced what you might experience later on in life I didn't want him thinking that that's 
the norm. That's what women expect. That's what you should expect. So I pointed him towards vintage porn. (laughs) Now, one of the things that can be helpful for a teen is to have a doctor who they feel comfortable talking to. Because if they're going to be sexually active, you want to know they're taking precautions, not just to prevent pregnancy, but also sexually transmitted diseases. So when is it okay for them to be able to visit a doctor without their parents' permission? And when should we help them set up that relationship? Dr. Cindy Pan is a GP and a sexual health specialist. So what do you think, Cindy? I think that's a really good thing that parents... um first of all, are aware that this confidentiality thing is, is quite a serious, it's actually a, um, a medical legally enshrined thing. So in their mid-teens, kids can go and see the doctor and the doctor not only is not obliged to tell the parents, they're actually obliged not to, mm. to a certain extent, unless they have the child's consent. And this is, of course, really important because you do want your child, if they have experienced something Given that a lot of sexually transmitted infections are asymptomatic, as in you don't necessarily know when you've got it, it's really important that young people have regular um, screening, as in regular tests, even if they are using condoms. The main thing that teenagers need to be aware of is that it's quite possible to get an STD without knowing. And it's quite possible, if you're unlucky enough, to get an STD even the first time you have sex. It's no, it's not, not like you get some sort of um, honeymoon period where you're in. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, unfortunately, I have, I've had a number of patients who have contracted STDs. They're just short of being a virgin. They've only had one sexual experience and they're unlucky enough to have an STD. And it also offers them an opportunity to, you know, have a conversation with a GP about prevention. And also to air any other concerns that they may have, whether that's concerns about their relationship with their significant other or with their parents or with school or whatever it is. And to just know that they have somebody there who, first of all, will keep whatever they say confidential. That's not to say that we encourage secrecy. Obviously not. We encourage Mm -hmm. children to have, you know, openness with their parents, especially if their parents have shown themselves to be, you know, open. And often, you know, well, the teenagers I talk to, they're very, very sensible. And they'll often tell me, oh, you know, mum is really good. No, I wouldn't want dad to know. Like they'll often know which parent is likely to be more understanding. But it's important that the parent knows they they can't come in and get their results for their kids beyond a certain age. Now, I just want to ask if there is there any interesting myths that you've had to unplug for a teenager or a young person about sex? You know, anything at all that might be a little interesting for us? Well, I don't know about teenagers um, believing myths, but I think there's parents who would believe some myths. For example, I think some parents think that their kids aren't having sex on the basis that um, they're staying at the house of their friend who was an angel. (laughs) (laughs) And I think parents sometimes don't know what's going on because they have these preconceived ideas. And I mean, I've had teenagers sort of kind of laughingly say, oh, look, no, no. <laughs> my parents think I'm with so-and-so who she thinks is extremely pious and an absolute angel. Is it ever okay for a parent to say, no, look, no, I'm not okay with you having sex? I think it's important that parents say what they think. Mm. And I think it's important as well that parents know that, that, that they are responsible for the kids and they are responsible 
for what happens in their household. And that, and that goes for, you know, serving alcohol or, or when you know alcohol is being served under your roof. I think parents need to be involved, but I, they also need to accept that their children will not necessarily want them to be involved. And I think that that is the difficulty. That's the challenge. That's the yeah. delicate balance that you need to achieve between respecting the child, respecting their autonomy, respecting their privacy, but also loving them, caring for them and taking responsibility for them to the extent that is appropriate mm. for the age. Exactly. And that word respect, respect to children, but also to teach them to respect other people's feelings. Cindy, thanks. It's been really great to chat. Okay, Kath, I want to move on to one of the big challenges, and that is the big challenge for teens that most parents weren't dealing with when they were young is smartphones. So what should we be saying to our teens about sexting and sending nude images to one another? Yeah, it's a contentious one because there's a lot of research now coming out that we actually need to stop seeing it as being a risky bad behaviour. And maybe we need to look at the fact that we've got kids that are growing up with devices and with phones, and this is just a way of flirting. Now, <laughs> this is where it gets contentious, because it's actually illegal mm -hmm. to send an image. So I think it's a conversation that you need to start having before they get that image. And then if that image has already happened, it's oh, it's just a matter, I guess, of hopefully continuing or starting conversations about the implications of that and the fact that, you know, what goes online is on forever, that sort of stuff. And I guess, you know, those of us who are a bit older think, oh, that's just a little bit gross. But they're a lot less inhibited than we were because of this sexualised world that being exposed to. So... We do need to change that mindset. But is there a difference between consensual sexting between two teens and then unwanted dick pics and, and revenge porn? You know, there's another line there, isn't there? What's the intention? When it's consensual, it's different. Like, I get dick pics all the time. Oh, oh. <laughs> I get emails. I don't get anything. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> I'll give you access to my email address. I get them all the time, unsolicited ones, because of the profession I'm in. And I'm, But you know what, Maggie? I'm actually glad I do get them because it actually reminds me of what it feels like to get yeah. something that's unsolicited. Yeah. So to have this pornographic image of someone's vulva or penis, you know, I, I sit and reflect about, well, hang on, how did that make me feel? How would that a 12 or 13-year-old make me feel? The consensual one is very different because you're both agreeing to and it might be part of the flirting. But as you said before, we're talking about brains that are still developing. They have no maturity. This week they might be boyfriend girlfriend. Yes. Next week they might someone might have gone mm. to a party and made out with someone else, and then they're sending the images on to others. So they lack the maturity to be able to make wise decisions about what then to do with them. And can get really in trouble with the law. We need mm. to really stress that one. It might have started innocently, but didn't end up that way. Do we have to talk to boys and girls differently about consent, Kat? I don't think so. Definitely not in the younger years because the, that whole consent conversation, it starts from the beginning. Like when you've got a three-year-old and you're going, do you want to wear your pink dress today or your blue jeans? And giving them that choice. So I think consent is something that we just 
naturally do as parents. It's just that as it gets older, you then need to have those conversations. How I talk to my kids currently about it is pretty similar. Other than probably with my son, I might be a little bit more aware of the conversation because I wouldn't want him to be a bystander to something happening. Yeah, and I think that's the in any sort of early sexual kind of interaction in there in those teen tween years is uh, it could start as a yes and it could very soon become a no and that we need to talk about how that feels for either because that that can trigger big ugly feelings of rejection or exclusion which can then become emotionally volatile so if you're prepared for that before that's going to possibly make it a little easier Yeah. When we think of consent, we often think of it as sexual consent, but it's the conversations beforehand. And as you said before, it's not just a matter of no. It's like it might be no today, but it might be yes tomorrow, or it might be yes in five minutes. So there's lots of different shades of grey, which is why I think we need to have those conversations. So it's about, you know, is it when grandma comes to visit, is it okay for grandma to insist on a kiss. You can start bringing in those foundations now and teaching kids from a very young age so that hopefully by the time they're a teen, it'll be a lot easier for them to have that confidence to say no. It seems in the old sex ed classes, there was always a condom and a banana or cucumber activity as part of teaching about safe sex. So I want to know um, what's happening out there, Kath? Oh, well, it's written in such a way that a lot of schools don't have to do sex education at all, or if they do do it, they don't have to do it very well. So I don't think as a parent we can rely on sex education happening in schools to our kids. And if it does happen, it's going to be very dry. There's a slow change. There's some very good curriculums coming out of Melbourne where there are some more pleasure-based stuff and consent is definitely being wrapped in. But I've got a few peers who work for themselves and they get called into schools all the time because they're not following the nuts and bolts approach. They're actually doing workshops on pleasure. They're talking about clitorises and masturbation and orgasm and loving relationships in a different way. Now, in our world that has so much more hypersexuality um, and serious dysfunction, how do we show our kids and our teens what that healthy, respectful, enjoyable sexual relationships look like? I know you've, you've mentioned how is it in the home, but it's not always something that is portrayed. We, we don't model it. We don't, as you say, we don't talk about how often we have sex and how great it was. This is, as your kids get older, this is the age where you've got to start sitting down and watching all that rubbish on TV with them. That's a great opportunity. So something might happen. You might be watching some movie and they walk off into the bedroom and you go, oh, what do you think happened then? And she'll, you know, you'd child might go, well, what do you think, mum? You know, they're going to have sex. And it's like, oh, but haven't they only just met? Mm. And Mm. you can then have that conversation about, oh, well, what would you do if you were at a party and that happened? Or you can start unpacking and talking about stuff. And look, it might only be just a random comment here or there, but that stuff, that random comment is so profound because it's opening the door and letting them know and you're unpacking stuff and talking. Is there really an effective way to encourage abstinence in your children? What do you reckon? The abstinence that gets the bad rap is abstinence where we won't tell kids anything. We will just tell them you will not have sex or you will go to hell. Um, You know, that is abstinence where we're not giving them information. 
it's a, it's something that we, as a parent, we should all be talking about as well. So as a parent with my own kids growing up, I'm giving them lots of information about what sex is all about, but I'm not actually saying to them, this is, you know, this is knowledge so that you can go out and do it. This is how you do it. I'm also talking about the fact that it's about a choice and that you don't have to be sexually active. You know, you should do it when you want to do it, when you want to do it, not when everyone else wants you to do it or your partner. So I think we do need to talk about the fact that there is choice and that abstinence is about choosing to not have sex. And it's also the degree. Some people think that, you know, not having sex is about, you know, not having penetration. But for others, it can be about kissing, it can be about hugging, it can be about oral, it can be about getting naked as well. So as a parent, if you want your kids to grow up with the same beliefs as you, you need to share those beliefs. Yeah. So you need to say to them, look, you know, I don't believe that you should have sex before marriage and this is why. And then there's a much better chance that your kids will grow up respecting those yeah. beliefs as well. How do we talk to our kids about um, avoiding a pre unwanted pregnancies? The unwanted pregnancy is a great conversation to have as part of going through puberty because part of puberty is, you know, boys are now making sperm and girls are now having periods, which means they're capable of, you know, popping out eggs that can get fertilised. So it's a great opportunity to talk about the fact that, oh, wow, you know, you're going through puberty, so that means that you'll be able to make a baby of yourself. Did you know that you can actually stop babies from being made and then talking about what that means? So you can talk about the fact that there's lots of different ways to stop a baby being made and that baby making, it can happen very easily. <laughs> and On the that, first yeah. go. Yeah, and talking about the consequences of that as well. Um, so that's a really important discussion because oh, it oh, just blows me away that still in this day and age, the number of kids who don't realise that when whites, you know, that they might be playing around with their boyfriend, he puts his penis in and white stuff comes out, what does it mean? It's just, I just struggle with the fact that there's still so much ignorance about how babies can get made and about how our bodies work. Kath, how important is it to talk to girls about what to expect from sex? Because for girls, even consensual sex can be painful and and not pleasurable. And heck, hang on, orgasms, far out. They're not guaranteed. They can take a while. And an orgasm can also feel border on that fine line between pleasure and pain. So if you can discover and explore your own body in the safety of your own home and environment, that's going to mean that when you're finally with someone else, you're going to have more of an idea of what you like as well. So hopefully you'll have discovered what an orgasm is. But there's so many myths out there. Like, you know, you watch porn and, you know, yeah. they have an orgasm on, pen you know, on penetration. Most women don't have an orgasm with penetration. Back to um, the question about sex being painful. If you're, you're with your partner, and I'm making the assumption here, we're talking about a male and a female, which because not everyone is heterosexual. But, you know, if it's like they're at a party and there's someone banging on the door and they want to have sex and they've got to do it because they've said they're going to do it, it's going to be painful because there's going to be no vaginal lubrication. There's going to be no sexual arousal or desire. That's going to be horrible sex. Mm. But if it happens somewhere else, maybe at your home and you've gotten to know each other and you've had lots of, you know, kissing and hugging and touching and then you finally decide that you're going to do it, 
chances are that that sex is going to be pleasurable because they're going to be aroused, they're going to be turned on, they're going to be feeling safe and secure. So I think we do need to make sure that kids have realistic expectations of what sex is because it's not always the you know what you see on a Hollywood movie. <laughs> yeah and so that really would make those conscious and aware parents out there who've made the choice that when their teen has said that they are ready to become sexual with the partner that they have feelings for that really it is absolutely okay if it happens in our house rather than you know in the back seat of a car or somewhere else so we need to be responsible that you know, it's, it's going to happen that we could be encouraging them to have that, you know, in a respectful and caring space so it's not going to scar them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, we don't talk enough about intimacy. We talk more about the deed. And I think the, the other thing... The deed, yeah. <laughs> what, you know, why are we actually talking to our kids about sex? What's the end goal? It's so that they actually make smart sexual decisions, hoping that they don't make the same mistakes that we made out of our ignorance, but giving them enough knowledge to be able to make smart decisions. And that's the end goal of what it's all about. And on that, should we be talking to boys about what girls experience during sex? So it doesn't go quite the way we want it to and it doesn't end up with that wonderful glow that we see in the movies. That is so true. We don't talk to boys about the fact that they might, you know, premature ejaculation, that they might get their penis in and they ejaculate within three seconds. We don't talk about that. Or we don't talk about the fact that, you know, that the female, she really should be lubricated and aroused. Otherwise, it's going to be uncomfortable. And also, what are their expectations of what it's going to feel like as well? We don't talk enough about, I don't think we talk about it at all, actually. Yeah. Be bold and tell them that that great sex is probably the best thing you're going to enjoy at some point. But you're going to take a while to get there in terms of maturity and capacity to open and hold your heart to a space of somebody who you care about deeply. True. Don't you love it? I've left you with a lot to consider for this final episode of the season. And how you decide to approach the talk that you now know is many, many talks, not just the one-off, how you talk to your kids about sex will depend on so many factors, on your own values, their level of maturity, and even their sexuality and gender identity. So those many chats keep building a much better, wider understanding of all the things to do with sex, our private parts, consent, pornography, and most importantly, on top of everything, what constitutes a respectful, loving, enjoyable, intimate relationship? Yes, I did mention enjoyable. The more unflustered and the more comfortable you become with all the topics, that's the goal, the easier it'll be for your kids to turn to you with questions instead of doing a Google search. Seriously, you do not want your little ones searching words like breast or penis. Think about pointing your kids to some pop culture that portrays sex in a slightly more realistic way than what they'll find on the internet. Get some of those excellent picture books that explore the topics and maybe check out some of the new animated and realistic sex ed videos that are being created for today's teens. So good luck. Stop squirming. You've got this. This is the final episode of this season of Parental As Anything. If you haven't listened to all of the episodes, go on, go and have a listen and tell your friends about it for me too. Thanks. Now, two of my favourites 
I'm managing screen time with Dr. Christy Goodwin and why play matters with the brilliant creator of Bluey, Joe Brum. You could also check out comedian Judith Lucy's podcast, Overwhelmed and Dying. Sounds a bit sad, but seriously, it's funny, heartfelt and poignant. You can listen to Judith Lucy's podcast for free on the ABC Listen app or the Apple and Google podcast apps and using your smart speaker. Parental as Anything is a production of ABC Audio Studios. The series was mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. The consulting producer is Carmen Myler. Our field reporter is Anne-Marie Middlemast. Additional production support came from Jane Curtis and Alex Lowback. Our producer is Kim Lester. The executive producer is Justine Kelly. And the head of ABC Audio Studios is Kelly Reardon.